Turn to Romans 8, maybe for the last time. This, this is either, I think, this is either our last message or maybe one more. And I say that knowing we could be here for the rest of the year and then some. But, but there's a whole Bible waiting for us out there. When we're done with the book of Romans, we've got Paul's continuing adventures in the book of Acts as we continue our, our study through the life of Paul. We've got the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. We've got the pastoral epistles. And when we're done with the life of Paul, I've never taught James. Rob has, so maybe we skip that for a while. We went through all four Gospels together. We spent three years going through the life of Christ, but maybe we take just one Gospel. What would that be like? Or maybe we go all the way to the beginning and we tackle the book of Genesis. We haven't touched the Pentateuch together. We'll see what the Lord has. It's, it's, it's a ways away we got time to pray. Today, I think we're in Romans 8 unless God throws a curveball at us. Two weeks ago, before I succumbed to death flu, we made it to verse 35, I think. But we said as we did that we were going to circle back because really we, our, our main focus was verses 27 and 28. The Holy Spirit making intercession for us, God working all things out for good for us, for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. We, we dipped a ways past that, but we did it in service of those two verses, and we did it saying that we were going to circle back. So let's read this morning, beginning in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, the firstborn among all of us. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a good response. He who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, how should the Father not with the Son also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's you and me. Who's going to accuse us? It's God who justifies. Who is he then who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is now, today, this moment, even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As that it's written, for your sake we're killed all the day long, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter, even so, that being true, yet, verse 37, in all these things we are still more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord magnificent verses all leading up to that last verse that promise really in, in in verses 38 and 39 but it's that last promise nothing can separate us from the love that is in, that, that, that we have that is love that is in Christ Jesus that's what I want to focus on this morning because it doesn't always seem true does it 
That last thing that Paul said, he said pretty emphatically. He's pretty sure he's right, that God loves us and that God is for us, that God has proven that, and nothing can change it. Nothing can separate us from it. His love for us is constant and unceasing and unfailing. Paul's pretty sure he's right, and I don't think he's wrong. But why then, so much of the time, does God's love seem so very far away? Far away or, 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 or absent altogether. We've talked about this before, and, and we're going to talk about it again, because there's different ways to answer the question. We talked about one of them a couple of weeks ago, the, 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 the idea that God is playing chess while we're playing tic-tac-toe. That God is deciding what's best for us, because that's what love is. Love does what's best for someone. Love is doing best, what's best for us, even when we can't perceive that that's what it is, even when it doesn't seem like it. God taking us down roads that we wouldn't choose for ourselves or bringing us back from roads that we did choose ourselves. That's, that's one way to answer the question. Here's another way that I want to explore this morning. Because it's an important question. It's one that we all struggle with. If nothing can separate us from the love of God, then where is that in my life right now? Why am I not seeing it, feeling it, experiencing it? Why can I not seem to lay hold of it? I want to explore another answer. And to do that, I want to rewind once more to verse 29. Let's bring that to the front of our mind. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pause there. Some of you were hoping we'd spend the whole morning there talking about the so-called golden chain because it's an excuse to talk about predestination everybody's favorite theological chew toy because verses 29 and 30 would seem to say that God chooses some of humanity to be saved which of course implies that he chooses that he creates some to not be with no possibility of being saved Verse 29 and 30 talks about predestination. What do you do with that, Mr. Mr. I'm not a Calvinist? I say, okay. Because <laughs> it's what the Bible seems to say here, and I'm not going to say that it doesn't. It's what the Bible says here. It's what the Bible says other places. Ephesians chapter 1. Somebody's reading it before I get to it. <laughs> He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. The Bible teaches predestination. I'm not going to say it doesn't. But the Bible also says, just as clearly, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He's willing that none shall perish, 1 Timothy 2.4. He gives us choice in our destiny. He tells us to choose life, Deuteronomy 30.19. He tells us to follow Jesus, Mark 8.34, and a bunch of other places. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Revelation 3.20. Are you going to let me in or not? Now, the, the, the Calvinist has an answer for those verses. And I've got an answer to their answers. And, 
We could go back and forth, but we'd end up in the same place. The Bible teaches predestination, and it also teaches free will. How do we resolve that contradiction? We can't. Not fully. And, and, and when, we, when we spent time on this subject earlier in Romans, I think it was Romans chapter 3, I said, I don't really want to. I don't want to put a big God in a teeny tiny box, because that, that's what it would take to fully resolve this tension between predestination and free will. It would mean bringing God to our level so that we can understand. Forcing everything God does into, a, into the framework of the human mind, that denies the greatness of God that we just sang about. Not going to do it. Not going to try to do it. I'd rather follow the words of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He says, I don't. Why would I try? You reconcile enemies. You reconcile an argument. You don't reconcile friends. His point being, it's not like predestination and free will are fighting. No, they're working together arm in arm. To do what? To save us. And even if I don't fully understand how that works, and I don't, and anyone who says they do is selling God short, even if I don't fully understand how, I can see, I can read that predestination and free will are working together to effect our salvation. And I see a principle in that. This is an example of a bigger principle I want to talk about this morning. Salvation is a function of God's sovereignty to choose us and our responsibility to respond. If we say that more simply, God's invitation demands or requires our cooperation. Now, requires is a big word, and if I thought about it harder, I might have chosen a different one. Because God is God, and God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. To, so, so to say God requires this always and, and everywhere of everyone, I'm doing what I said I didn't want to do. I'm putting God in a box. But, but I think there's a principle here. That when God chooses to invite, God can act sovereignly without our say-so anytime he wants to. But when he chooses to issue an invitation, he's doing it for one reason. He's doing it to elicit our cooperation. If he wanted to just do it and didn't care what we thought, he wouldn't invite us. He would just do what he wanted to do. His invitations, when he issues them, require our cooperation. That's a big principle. Salvation is one example. We couldn't save ourselves. We know that. No amount of good works, good deeds, good intentions could ever outweigh the enormity of our sin. We can't save ourselves. That's why Jesus. That's why the cross. We can't save ourselves. We can't even muster the desire to be saved in and of ourselves. John 6, 44. No one comes to the Father. Uh, sorry, no one comes to faith in me unless the Father draws him, Jesus says. John 6, 44. God stands at the door and knocks. He invites us. He bids us Come. And if he didn't, we'd be lost forever. We'd be lost completely, eternally, and deservedly, by the way. But God initiates. 
when we were sinners, Jesus what? Came for us. While we were rebelling against God, Jesus died for us. Today he stands at the door and invites us, hey, my death paid for your sin, believe that and be saved. He invites us to respond. He invites us to cooperate with him. He invites us. He doesn't compel us. Doesn't force us. Beckons us and waits for us to respond. Knocks on the door. Doesn't kick it in. He knocks and he waits. And the invitation stays an invitation until it's met with cooperation. So far, so good. If you're, if, if, you're, if you're struggling with this, an analogy I've used a lot, think about a gift card. Gift card is an invitation, right? There's value there. Someone paid for it. But it doesn't do any good until you cooperate with it. Gift card doesn't do any good sitting on my dresser. Doesn't, does, you know, it's not art. It's not a good paperweight. I tried using one for a bookmark once. I hope whoever got the library book after me enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. A gift card is an invitation. Have a meal at Outback on me, but it requires cooperation before that little piece of plastic turns into steak. And in the same way, God's invitation requires cooperation before it yields salvation. Now, that's a, that's a principle that extends beyond what Paul is talking about here. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God invited them to live there in paradise. But hey, cooperate with me. Stay away from that tree. God invited the children of Israel to prosper in the land. Hey, I'll, I'll deal with your enemies, but you've got to fight the way that I tell you to fight. When they entered the land, they said, hey, the, the, the Jordan River's at flood stage. We can't cross the river. God says, go ahead and step in. And as your priests step in bearing the ark, I'll pull the water back. They said, what about we do it the other way? And you pull the water back. And God says, no, I'm giving you an invitation. Now respond. Cooperate with me. Trust me. Jesus, let's go New Testament. Jesus says to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. He invites him to live a healed life. But unless that, that paralytic man cooperates with him, he might as well still be paralyzed because until he stands, he's living the same life that he lived before. Again and again, we see the same thing as the point. God initiates, we respond, and when we do, life and ministry happen. Now again, in this passage, Paul's main point is about salvation. Verses 29 and 30, the verses that we just read, we've read them twice now, is that having responded, God invited, we responded, God initiated, we responded, Jesus died, we believed and confessed, now our eternity is secure. His invitation met our cooperation. We believed in our heart and confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Our eternity is secure. Having been justified, Paul says in this passage, having been declared not guilty because we put our lot in with Jesus, we will be glorified. He uses the past tense. We call that the prophetic past tense. When Jesus talks about something that hasn't happened yet, as if it has, because if he says it's going to, it's as good as done. This is, this is Philippians 1.6 territory. Having begun a good work in us, God will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. 
He didn't send Jesus to the cross, verse 32. He didn't send Jesus to the cross to abandon us now. He will keep us. And it makes sense that that's how it would work, verse 33. We didn't save ourselves. Why would we need to keep ourselves? We talked about this a few weeks ago. At the cross, all of our sins were forgiven. The sins that we sinned before, the sins that we hadn't sinned yet. Paid in full, every one of them. Wednesday, we talked about how Paul in these verses is really reaching back to Isaiah 50, and that's where we were on Wednesday. In Isaiah, Jesus says prophetically, I was justified. I was declared not guilty. How do we know? God raised him from the dead. That was, that was, that was the receipt. That was the proof that his, his sacrifice was acceptable. Jesus says prophetically, I was justified. Paul grabs a hold of that and he says, yeah. So now we know that we're justified. In Isaiah, Jesus says, no one can condemn me. I lived a sinless life. No one can condemn me. Paul says, yeah, and no one can condemn us because our life is now in you. You can listen to the study on your own or, or dig into it on your own. The gist is in Isaiah, Jesus says, I will. In Romans, Paul says, he did. So we are. At the cross, Jesus did conquer sin and death and Satan. And in him, verse 37, in him so have we. And nothing, let's bring it to a close, nothing past, present, future, anything, anyone ever can possibly change that. Verses 38 and 39. But on the way to getting where we're going, back in verse 30, I asked this question a couple weeks ago. I want to ask it again. What's missing from the golden chain? What's conspicuous by its absence? Glorification is there. Paul says in verse 30, those who God justifies, there you go, those who God justifies, he will glorify. Those that he saves, he will safely bring home to heaven. That's glorification. And that's what he says in verse 30. And, that, and that's what he's repeating and amplifying and, and expanding on in the whole rest of the passage. But what's missing? Sanctification. Three tenses of our salvation. We were saved. Justification. We will be saved. Glorification. But between the already and the not, I'm sorry, between the, yeah, the already and the not yet, we will be we are being saved. We are becoming more like Christ. We are being molded. We are being shaped into his image. We are putting on the mind of Christ. We are laying down our flesh. We are being refined. Asterix. If we want to be. The reason sanctification isn't mentioned, the reason that it's not on that list of link to link to link to link, God doesn't promise it. Unlike glorification, it's not a given. It's not guaranteed. Why not? It's a choice. Sanctification is like justification. It's an invitation. It's Jesus, again, knocking, even, even on our hearts. As believers, Jesus is standing at the door of our hearts and knocking. Hey, you want to get in on this? Do you want to be more like me? Do you want to submit yourself to a process that isn't always going to be fun, and a lot of times it's going to be painful, but you're going to end up resembling me more and more and more? It's an invitation that requires cooperation before it can go into operation. It, and, and, and that shouldn't boggle our mind. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. 
He says, I don't do the thing I want to do. I do the thing I don't want to do. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we still have free will to follow Jesus or not. Having been justified, we would say being saved, Having been justified, we will be glorified. In that sense, yeah, our, our eternity is predestined. Because having been justified, nothing can stop us now. We're going to go home to heaven. But what happens between then and then is largely up to us. Salvation is an invitation. It's not a compulsion. Which brings us to the answer to the question we asked 15 minutes ago. Why does God's love, the love that came, the love that saves, the love that will save, the love that never fails, why does it seem so far away so much of the time? Answer. God invites us to be loved as believers, invites us to be made more like him in this life. And that invitation is not always met with our cooperation. Follow me, Jesus says, but he doesn't force us. Doesn't drag us, doesn't club us over the head and throw us in the back of a car. He offers. He extends a hand. He says, hey, you want to get in on this? You want to do this? Come on. The invitation is there. The cooperation, maybe, maybe not. And the thing is, 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 is that's not even a one-and-done decision. The decision about sanctification isn't once that we make once and then coast on for the rest of our lives. No, that, play, that, that decision presents itself dozens of times every day. Should I stay or should I go? Should I cooperate with God or resist? Walk in the Spirit, walk in the flesh. Follow Jesus, follow not Jesus. Four ways of saying the same thing. And when we choose not Jesus, when we choose to not cooperate with sanctification, when we choose, listen, when we choose to go our own way away from Jesus, doesn't it make sense that Jesus and his love will seem far away? Because we've distanced ourselves from his presence and his power, and his love. In his presence is fullness of joy. If we run from his presence, if we reject his purpose, if, if, we, if we run away from his plans, well then, then we're running from his power. He doesn't, have, he doesn't promise power for our plans. He promises power for his plans. Then we're running from his peace, and we're running from the experience I'm going to say this carefully, of his love. His love is still there. And this is really important. Don't mishear this. Nothing we can do can diminish the love that God has for us. It is unfailing and unceasing and non-negotiable. Nothing we can do can diminish the love that God has for us, but we can diminish the love that we're perceiving and receiving and experiencing. Do you get that distinction? The love is always there. Paul's absolutely correct. But our experience of that love, our enjoyment of that love, is largely a function of our cooperation. Parable of the prodigal son. I, I, I know I'm going there a lot lately because it's so important. 
And it, and it touches everything. Son runs away from the Father, Luke 15. Son runs away from the Father. The Son rejects the benefits of being a son. And it's fun for a while until it isn't. It's fun until the money runs out, and then he has nowhere to sleep and nothing to eat, and he's rolling around in the mud. If you think back to the story, no one tried to stop him when he decided to leave. I mean, I'm sure that some people tried to have the conversation, are you sure? Here's the pros, here's the cons. But, but, but no one tackled him. And no one went after him. No one forced him is the point. No one forced him to stay with the Father. He had the free will to live with the Father or not. To live with the Father under his roof according to his rules. There was an ongoing open invitation to stay there or not. He chose to leave. Didn't want to cooperate with the plan. No one stopped him. But even when he was rolling around in the mud, he never stopped being a son. And this is the point we talked about the last time we talked about this. He stopped enjoying being a son. But when he was ready to come home, when he was ready to cooperate with the plan again, he was welcomed without question. When he was ready to start enjoying being loved at home again, he was welcomed with open arms. Prodigal son offered to pay. I'll work off my debt. Father, father ignored him, pretended that he didn't hear him. Your debt is a non-issue. Why? It was already forgiven because he was already a son. But living as a son, living as a daughter, that was always up to him. Just as it's always up to us. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. 4. Or not. It's a choice. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Colossians 3.15. Or not. It's a choice. Those are invitations. But whether we lay hold of that joy, of that peace, whether we draw near to that love, depends on our cooperation. And the, and the principle is true for each of us individually. It's also true for all of us collectively. It's true for us as believers. It's true for all of us as the church. And that's where I want to go this morning. Now that we've established this principle, now that we've loaded in this idea about invitation requiring cooperation, let's apply it. Find your own application on your own for you in your life. But let's talk about the application for us, all of us together. Let's talk about the application for Calvary. I got a text from a friend last Wednesday after service, my friend Brian, that's my friend Brian. Um, we were pastors together at my home church in New Jersey. And he's still there. Um, he texts me and he says, happy anniversary. And I had to pause because some of you know that, that Ann and I have two anniversaries. We have our public anniversary where we dressed up and had a party. Uh, we have a private anniversary. We actually were legally married a couple months before that when her dad and his emphysema, when it was clear he wasn't going to make it to our wedding date. We were married in her parents' living room a couple months before we were married with everybody else. So, so I had to stop and think, okay, which one of my anniversaries is this? It's neither one. Neither one's in January. So I texted back, what are you talking about? He says, you and I got ordained 20 years ago tonight. Which, which wasn't remotely on my radar. I, I couldn't have told you that date with a gun to my head. But, but it was sort of weird once he reminded me of it. 
20 years as a pastor, more than 20 years in full-time ministry, that's a long time to do anything. And I was relating that to someone. I guess I was kind of processing out loud later that night. Man, I got this crazy text. And they said, well, what do you know now? 20 years, what do you know now that you didn't know then? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, where, where, how do you... I, but what I said, because I was... I, what I said was, you know, I think I'm starting to understand... How, how huge God's invitation is. His invitation to pursue him, to yield to him. And, and 20 years later, I, I want to cooperate with him more than I ever have. They said, how do you do that? I Stop asking me questions. I'm trying to process here. You're interrogating me. So I said, pray, because that's never the wrong answer, right? So, so we prayed. Well, later that evening... Another friend of mine named Eric, that's Eric, um, he was a missionary to Uganda. He was the Bible college director in Kenya for a time. He posts something interesting on social media. He posts a list of the seven temptations of the Western church. Now, it wasn't a list that he came up with. It was something that he got from a guy named Jeff Christofferson, which I don't know who that is other than he's a missionary in Canada. But Eric is a really wise cat, and when he posts something, I pay attention. And this was spot on. And, and, and Christofferson's point, and, and he wrote a book, and I haven't read the book. I'm just looking at his list and his little blurby things. The seven temptations of the Western church, we could also understand as seven invitations. Seven conflicting invitations, competing invitations. Because if Jesus is inviting us to cooperate with him over here, if I'm invited to one party and I go to one party, it stands to reason I can't accept invitations to any other party because I'm already here. And so he's saying, hey, there are invitations that are coming to the church that could take us exactly where we don't want to go, resisting God's sanctification, wandering way far from his love. He's got seven examples. I'm going to hit them quick. I don't love all of his verbiage, but it's his list, so I'm going to use his words. The first temptation that he calls out is philosophicalism, which is a made-up word if I've ever heard one. But, but, it's, but we get what he means. It's when faith becomes a philosophy rather than a lifestyle. When we care more about believing in Jesus than following Jesus. When we're more concerned with whether we have the right creed than whether we're following the Great Commission philosophicalism is, is about forgetting that Christianity is a religion of verbs. Go, preach, disciple, love, serve. And yeah, the first verb on that list is believe, but if we stop there, we stop short of God's call in our lives, which means that we stop short of God's love in our lives. Second one was professionalism. When Ministry becomes delegated, the delegated responsibility of a few rather than the shared responsibility of a family. When, when we say, well, who's equipped, who's trained, who's experienced, rather than asking who's called and who's anointed. God has called us to be a body, and Paul tells us in Corinthians, we all have a part to play. We're different parts, eyes, ears, hair, liver, toes. But just like an orchestra, Every part is important. 
when we, when we look at church and say, well, what do, you, what do you really need? It's like looking at an orchestra and saying, do we really need all of these people? Give me two violins and a viola and a cello and I'm good. Okay, that's not an orchestra. That's a chamber ensemble. And yeah, they can make music, but they can't do everything an orchestra can. And a lot of people are left out. The, the, the flautists and the bassoon players and the oboe players and the clarinets and, and, and all of the rest, they're missing out on the joy of being part of the orchestra. We're missing out on their unique song. They're missing out on participating in God's symphony and bringing the world the music that God intends, but we're missing out on their unique part, their unique notes, their unique tones. Every one of us has a gifting that's ours alone. Every one of us has a story that no one else has. Run away from that call, we're running away from God. Run away from God, we're running away from God's love. Third, presentationalism. Another made-up word. But we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We just didn't call it that. It's church's spectator sport. When church is what we do on Sunday, then what we are every day. When church is about the crowd that gathers rather than the community that serves one another. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor it other than to say what John says in 1 John 2.9. If we ignore each other, if we don't love each other, we are not loving God. Loving God always draws us to love one another. If we're not loving one another, then we're not loving God. If we're not loving God, should we be surprised that he feels far away? Fourth one, pacifism. Sitting by passively and watching while people make decisions that consign them to hell. I might have called this pluralism because a lot of times we do it out of respect for the plurality of beliefs and religions and faiths that are all around us. We want to love them where we're at. We don't want to ram Jesus down their throat, which is fine. It's fine to to show people the gospel. It's fine to model the kindness of Jesus. But if we never get around to sharing the gospel, then what is it all for? Respect is great, but we can't forget the fact that we're here to rescue the lost. Speak the truth in love, yes, but if we never speak the truth, do we really have love? If your neighbor's house is burning down and they've decided to chain themselves to the radiator, probably I'm not going to get them out in time. I probably won't be able to drag them to safety against their will. But if I don't knock on the door and wake them up because I'm afraid that they might be annoyed that I'm waking them up in the middle of the night, my priorities are all wrong. When we forget it's our job to knock on doors, then, then, then we're going to forget the joy and the intimacy and the love that we experienced when Jesus walked up and knocked on our door and we invited him to come in. Five, pragmatism. What's good is what grows Calvary. What's bad is what grows the church across the street because we're all after the same bodies. All fishing in the same stream. We're all after the same tithes. Except no. Heavens, no. Church, a church isn't a business. Two, the church across the street and up the street and down the street, they're not our competition. Our competition is sin and death and Satan collectively, we're all competing against that, against them. We're not here to shuffle souls from church to church. We're here to save souls out of the world. And if another church is better equipped to reach a particular person, praise Jesus. When growing our brand becomes more important than building the kingdom, 
first, we're isolating ourselves from the richness and the diversity of the body of Christ. Second, we're isolating ourselves from God. Six, partisanism. It's another one that we've talked about. When we talk more about a political party, then we talk about people that Jesus died for. And when we forget that people who belong to other parties are people that Jesus died for. If I decide how much I love you is a function of how you vote, that's a pretty good indication of how much I'm loving God. How much I'm pursuing His love. Because His love for me is always, always going to translate into love for others. Is there a lot of darkness in the world that we, we need to acknowledge? Yes. Are we in the world to call sin, sin? Yes. But hate, we were reminded Monday, hate cannot drive out darkness. Only love can do that. The only thing hate can do is drive us into darkness. Away from God's love, away from God's light. Seven, paternalism. The world revolves us, us uh, around us. Us is in the U.S., us. God loves the United States. Everyone else is second class. I don't dispute that the Lord has used the United States, perhaps uniquely. God used Babylon. God used Assyria. Well, that's not a fair comparison, Patrick. They're not Christian nations. Maybe not. But whatever the U.S. is or isn't, we're not the center of the world. We're not the apple of God's eye. That title belongs to Israel. Are they set aside for a moment? Yes. But when we try to be something that we're not, we're missing out on who we're called to be. And we're missing out on how much God loves people who aren't us. And we're missing out on God being where we are, doing what we're called to do as us. If it were me, I wouldn't have stopped at seven. He stops at seven. I don't I'm, I'm on a roll. Hey, let's go for 10. Because it gets easy. Number eight, particularism. I'd call it legalism, but it doesn't start with P. When legalism is more important than love, when we set ourselves up to be the Holy Spirit in the world, we distance ourselves from the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because he says, okay, if you're doing my job, I'll be over here. Let me know when you're done. When we're nitpicking in God's name instead of loving in his name, we end up far away from his love. Number nine, this is, this is still me not stopping at seven. Number nine could be permissivism. When we decide it's okay for sin to just continue unchecked in our own lives, unchallenged in the body. When we elevate tolerance above truth, when we decide to love things that God hates. When, when we do that, we stop hearing the voice that loves us. Because we've already told him with our actions, we don't care what he thinks. Why should he keep talking? And number 10, for the sake of a round number, populism. When it's more important to be accepted than accurate. When we care more about what people want to say than what the Bible says. Again, if we choose to stop listening to God, God tends to stop speaking, and we get sad and feel far away. But who is it that moved? We could keep going. If we put our minds together, we could come up with a top 20 and still be on time for lunch. But we don't need to. I think it's useful to call out certain temptations, certain invitations that we can expect to receive from the world and from our own pride. I think it's useful to call them out so that maybe we'll recognize them when they come. 
The thing is, is our response to all of them is the same. When any one of those invitations comes to our door and knocks, our response should be the same right across the board. Sorry, I can't accept your invitation. I've already accepted one from Jesus. Sorry, I can't go with you on this temptation. I'm too busy cooperating with Jesus. My focus is on following Jesus. And if I'm following Jesus, the rest of it has a lot less appeal. That's it. Ten temptations, one response. One size fits all. Follow Jesus and keep following Jesus. Because his invitation hasn't changed. Follow me, keep following me. The best way to reject other invitations is to keep accepting his. I can't go to your party. I'm already at this party. Keep cooperating with Jesus. Keep saying yes to Jesus. Because when we say yes to Jesus, when we keep saying yes to Jesus, love is always a verb. So is go, so is serve, so is give. When we say yes to Jesus, love is always a verb. When we say yes to Jesus, every member is a minister. Different gifts, different calling. Everyone's serving. When we say yes to Jesus, church isn't where we go, it's who we are. It's the one anotherness that distinguishes us. When we say yes and keep saying yes to Jesus, we speak the truth in love. Because if we hide the truth in love, it's not really love, it's fear. When we keep following Jesus, our focus is on souls for the kingdom, not bodies in the building. When we keep saying yes to Jesus, we focus on a harvest that's global. Not national, not even local. We're part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. We have our part to play, and we're going to play it with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But we're part of a, a, a majestic orchestra. When we keep following Jesus, we rejoice in liberty because we've been freed from legalism. We've been freed from the law, but we also reject license because we've been freed from sin. When we keep saying yes to Jesus, the crowd is going to say no to us. But that's okay. Because while the crowd is getting further and further from us, we're getting closer and closer to him. And the peace that's waiting there. And the joy that's promised there. And the love that never fails. What have I learned in 20 years of ministry? I don't know if I've learned a thing. <laughs> but I think what I'm starting to learn, what I'm, what I'm starting to wrap my arms around, is how much of an invitation this life is. And how much cooperation I've been holding back. And how much love I've missed out on because of it. If Jesus tarries another 20 years, I hope the story that I have to tell is a story about running to sanctification, not resisting it, not evaluating it, not wondering, well, on the one hand, on the other hand. I hope the story that I have to tell is, is a story of seeing God's refining as a privilege, not as punishment. I hope that the story that I have to tell is, is one of seeing the trials of this world, this life, and, and ministry, all this preparation 
for the day we see him face to face. And I hope you'll join me. Father, we... We glimpse the greatness, the enormity of your love. I think if we tried to to put eyes on it, would it be like Moses? The brilliance, the, the awesomeness of it would just melt us. But Lord, we can respond to what we've seen. We can respond to what we know. We can cooperate with your love. You've given us your spirit. We know your voice. We can seek you. We do hear from you. Lord, teach us to obey you, to submit to you, to run hard after you, that we might become more like you, that we might draw people to you, that our lives might glorify you.